Welcome to the Higher Learning Podcast with me, Oz Rashid. Our podcast focuses on the one thing every business leader must excel at when building a high-performance team, effective hiring. Identifying high performers that fit your team is not just an HR responsibility. It impacts every area of the business and all hiring leaders in your company. We're here to have an honest and entertaining conversation with different business leaders from a variety of industries to learn about new ways of identifying and engaging top talent in today's business environment. I'm your host, Oz Rashid. Welcome to Higher Learning. I am your host, Oz Rashid. Today I have with me Anders Jones from Facet Wealth. Anders, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Oz. Great to be here. Great. I'm so happy to have you. I appreciate you coming on. We got a lot to talk about, but I want to start here. Can you tell us a little bit about your business, Facet Wealth? Yeah, absolutely. So Facet is a fintech company, and we do financial planning for people that wouldn't typically work with a traditional financial advisor. So we're focused on folks that aren't millionaires, don't have huge amounts of money that advisors can invest for them. And we really take a different approach to financial planning where we believe it's something that can help you live better today without sacrificing tomorrow. So company's been around since 2016. We're venture backed. We've grown pretty fast in the last few years and really passionate about the benefit that financial planning and having control of your financial life can do for people. Yeah. Wow. I love that. I'm actually fascinated about this because I'm somebody that up until recently was using Excel and some online banking forms to manage my finances. And we have a lot of earlier in their career listeners who, you know, might not know when the right time to get involved with financial planning is. So do you, yeah. I know it's different person to person. Do you think that there's a right time when and why to start getting involved and start financially? The answer is today. And I think that applies to anyone that you're, anyone that you're talking to. The reality is that every decision that we make is to a certain extent a financial decision. Sure. And having a sense of how the decisions that you're making fit into the bigger picture of your overall life is super important. And there's a lot of unneeded and unnecessary stress around your finances that if you just have a better view of the whole picture, you can really get rid of a lot of that. You can mitigate a lot of that stress. And that's what we find with a lot of our clients they come to us because they're worried about something and they're nervous about something. Sometimes we have people who come to us because they're really excited about money. That's not that frequent. And really working with an expert and mapping it all out is incredibly important. Wow. So you'd say even somebody teenage years in college, now is the time to start getting smart about your finances, whether it be through technology or a planner. Totally. And look, I, not to go down too much of a rabbit hole here, but I think that one of the biggest misses that we have in the US is financial education is not really prioritized. And that's something that just some building block basics is super important and can really put you you head and shoulders above everyone else. Yeah, I know you didn't want to go down a rabbit hole, but now we're starting to because sure. this happens to be a shared passion of yours and mine. I yeah. find that we work with a philanthropy here in South Florida called Junior Achievement. They're very big on financial literacy for fifth graders and eighth graders in Broward County in the county that I live in. And my daughter went through that program and I really loved it. And then also when we hire people fresh out of college, we actually take the responsibility of trying to do some training to financially prepare people for what's your first mortgage going to look like? What does it mean when you check these boxes on a tax form? What's credit card interest? What's rolling and in compounding interest? These are things that you would think in a lot of ways, some people know very young and have financial literacy at a very young age, and then others are very much sink or swim about it. And to your point, if you figure it out later on in life, there's a good chance that you're going to be making some mistakes along the way that can really set you back. So Totally agree with you on that. So if somebody is going into financial planning, right, or they're looking yeah. at a financial planner, 
every industry's got its good and it's not so good. I'm interested, mm -hmm. what are things somebody should look for? Maybe if they're going to a person or even if they're using a fintech, what should they be looking for in a financial planner? What would you point out? So this is where I think that there's an opportunity to really change the conversation away from how the industry has talked about it up until this point. Anytime you talk to a traditional financial advisor, they're going to talk to you about managing your money or probably selling you some sort of product like an annuity or an insurance policy or something like that. For the last several decades, financial planning has really been the loss leading sales tool to get you to do something with your assets that they can charge a fee on. 98% yep. of financial advisors charge you a fee based on the assets that they're managing. And if you think about it, it really makes very little sense. It does not align what's best for you with their interests. They'll say, look, you make more money, or excuse me, I make more money as your advisor, the more money you make in the market. So, you know, our incentives are aligned. The reality is if an advisor is coming to you saying that, hey, I can beat the market or I can do better than the market or than a broad-based set of index funds, you should run the other way because it's not possible. The best that you thing that you can do, unless you're ultra, ultra high net worth and have access to all kinds of crazy investment strategies, the best thing you can do is be invested in broadly diversified, passive, low-cost index funds that just get you exposure to the market. So that's point number one, is that anyone who's charging you based on assets or commissions, are their incentives are naturally misaligned with yours. So at Facet, we charge an annual subscription. It's a flat fee. It's tied to the complexity of your situation. Basically, how much time are we spending with you? What are the resources on our end that we're using to, to service you? So for us, it ranges from $2,000 up to $6,000 a year. And you can imagine someone who's just starting out is at the lower end, someone who's married, has three kids, is, you know, runs a small business, taking care of their aging parents. That's a bit more complex. And so that's at the higher end. But we really try and match it with what are we doing for you? And then the other thing is, is really digging into what is the advisor offering in terms of the services they're providing. A lot of times it's, we're going to manage your money and we're going to help you plan for retirement. And by the way, the answer to planning for retirement is save more in your retirement accounts that we're going to manage for you and charge you money on. So it's a little bit of, that's a little circular there. And so instead ask about, okay, are we going to talk about cash flow? That's like the basis to start every financial planning conversation. How much is coming in every month? How much is going out? Is there enough left over to do what you want to do in the medium and long term? Go much deeper on the set of services that they're providing. And that's where I think a huge amount of the industry really falls down. And they say they do financial planning, but they really don't. Yeah. I really love how mission-driven you are. I'm thinking back to my financial advisor, and I think he specifically said to me, I don't make money unless you make money. So I'm going to have to write an angry email tomorrow morning based on your advisement. I really appreciate that. That's come, good advice. Come talk to us. Come talk to us. We're there for you. Oh, I love it. I love it. Yeah. So I got to ask you, I'm really always trying to find out entrepreneurs, how they came about their business. You're obviously very mission driven. Yeah. We were talking a little bit about the timing of it. Tell me about your story. I know you have some co-founders. How was Facet founded? We've heard a little bit about what the mission is. I'd like to know a little bit about the story that led to it. Yeah, for sure. So there's a couple angles here and I'll give you the mission one first, because I think it's the one that actually has had more impact on our company, like who we are as a company, the people that we hire, what our culture is, which I know is near and dear to your heart. Yep. So we call it the tale of three mothers. So, you know, they're the three kind of original co-founders were myself, a guy named Patrick, who I have worked with for basically my entire career. And then a guy named Brent, who actually was a financial planner at a, or financial advisor at a high net boutique advisory. And he joined us to be the third co-founder and bring the subject matter expertise. And we each have a personal connection to this mission. 
which is Patrick's mom works for the postal service. She was a mail carrier and she retired and had a couple hundred thousand dollars saved up and went down to the local Edward Jones office. And I actually don't mind naming names here because I think that there are some folks deserve to be called out. Yes. And, um, call them out. Let's do it. Yeah. And so she went down to the local Edward Jones office and they, the friendly local Edward Jones advisor tried to sell her an annuity with a 7% upfront commission that locked her up for, I don't know, 20 years or something like that. And Patrick at that point was working on Wall Street. She sent it to him and was like, this doesn't feel right. And he was like, oh, you're about to get hosed on fees. And so steered her away from that. So he has a personal vendetta there. Brent was working at a high net worth financial advisory firm. He was a partner there and couldn't actually help his own mother because she couldn't afford his fees. And so he was like, this is crazy. I see so clearly how much she needs the help. And I can't actually bring her on as a customer because I can't, she can't afford to pay my fees. And then my angle is a little bit different, which is that my mom actually worked in the industry. So she worked at Fidelity most of her career and then retired from T. Rowe Price in 2012. And she built a lot of the retirement businesses around. So marrying mutual funds with 401k is like the basis for modern financial planning or the modern retirement industry. But her thing was always like, look, we're helping millions of Americans save for retirement. And that's really great and really important. But there's a huge need around like helping them live better today and helping them think about how they're spending their money in retirement or what they're doing now to get themselves ready for a retirement where they don't run out of money. And so that was like always in the atmosphere as I was growing up. So anyway, so we all come at it from a different angle. At this point, we're about 300 employees. I would say that every single one of our employees has a connection to the mission one way or another. And each one is different. We have a lot of people who worked as financial advisors and they just, something didn't feel right about the model to them. And they came and worked for us. It's a super important part of our culture. And I think honestly, like we'll probably get into this too, but we're hundred percent virtual at this point. And keeping this sort of that glue, that cultural glue together, even when you're not seeing each other every day. And we have a lot of folks who've actually never met another facet person in real life. But that connection to the mission, I think, really ties us together. Yeah. We're definitely going to dive into culture in a little bit. What a fantastic story. As an entrepreneur, I've been told before that necessity is the mother of invention. And you guys are just taking that to a whole other level at Facet. So I really love that. Yeah. Uh, I want to ask you one more thing before we get into the hiring questions. You and I were talking the other day, and listen, you lived in Northern California, which is a known technology hub, Silicon Valley over there. And then you moved to Baltimore as an emerging. But then we were talking about what is the next Silicon Valley? And what you told me is that you don't think there's a next Silicon Valley. You really think that we're moving more to boundarylessness. And I think it goes back to what you were just talking about virtually. Can you give me a little more insight about what you mean there? Totally. So the context is I grew up in Boston, lived in California for 12 years, was on the early team of a startup that eventually became a company called LiveRamp, which is now a public company and then was hanging out for a couple of years doing some angel investing and got really interested in this idea that innovation and talent is everywhere. And so invested in, I want to say like eight or nine companies all over the country, but specifically not in San Francisco or New York. And if you actually look at a place like Silicon Valley, there are not that many organizations, for instance, that are filing hundreds of patents a year right? Apple probably is, maybe Stanford, maybe Berkeley. And so, but not like the actual innovation, core innovation, not a lot of it's happening in Silicon Valley. Go to a place like Baltimore, which is where we ultimately headquartered Facet. Johns Hopkins filed like 560 patents last year. It's crazy. And that doesn't ever get talked about. What Silicon Valley has going for it is that it has a lot of people who have experience taking an idea and scaling it into a company. So it's like there's taking the invention and then turning it into innovation, which I think you need like broad commercial applicability to to really qualify there. Yep. And but the actual like 
the actual sort of core inventions happening all over the place. And I think more and more, and especially with COVID, I think COVID was a huge accelerant of this. You have people realizing that you don't need to be in Silicon Valley to, to make that happen. And I think you have a lot of investors now that are looking beyond Silicon Valley. You have a lot of companies that realize that, hey, we can hire engineers in Minnesota that are a third of the cost of what you would pay for an engineer right outside of right outside of right out of Stanford or something like that. There's this great level setting going on. And I think that's just going to continue. I believe in efficient markets and I believe in classic economic liberalism where comparative advantages are continue to be exploited. And I think we're in a place now where that that sort of like great leveling across the country is happening. I think it's awesome. Yeah, that access to technology is one of the greatest benefits of what came out of the last few years with the pandemic. And like you said, it's leveling the playing field for everybody. It's not just Apple and Google and everybody who's getting this talent. Really, it's boundaryless. The talent is everywhere. It's just a matter of you finding them, identifying them, qualifying them, and then making them believe your mission, which it sounds like a facet you guys are doing an incredible job of. Here's my question for you. You, okay. have, you said you have a 100% virtual environment. There mm -hmm. are some known benefits to being in office from time to time. We do have a hybrid schedule here in MSH from a cultural perspective, from a development perspective, from a collaboration perspective. Not that you can't have that in a 100% virtual environment, but I think you have to be more intentional around those types of things as a leader and for your organization. What is FACET doing around, whether it be collaboration, culture building, development, and you know, those things that uh, traditionally have been done in person a lot of the time and, and been successful in person? How do you handle those in the virtual environment and get the same effectiveness? It's a great question. And I would say I don't have the be all end all answer for it. It's funny, like my lines throughout the pandemic has been like anyone who's putting a stake in the ground being like the office is dead or like, butts in seats three days a week, they ultimately end up looking like idiots in the long run. Right? So I'm not really dogmatic one way or another about what the right approach is. I think what's worked for us is there's certain work that, as you said, is much better to do in person. Like for us, it'd be we're designing a new product and we need to have a team come together and ideate on it. Or if we're fast forward to launching that product a few weeks later, the team needs to be together for the launch or if we're doing sort of budget conversations or strategic work, whatever it is. So what, and again, like we're still figuring this out. So this is by no means like the, the playbook, but I get my executive team, which is seven people together once four days a month like on the calendar, we have this scheduled out through the end of 2023 right now. So it's like almost as far scheduled out as like board meetings are. And the way that we do it is we, so we've got people in 42 different states, but we have these different cities where there are concentrations of people. So we'll go to Denver and there's 20 faceteers there and we'll do two days of offsites and then have a big dinner with a broader group. So it's where we get a chance to interact with the team. And then what we do is we kind of say to managers, hey, you've got some budget for travel. Like these are the things that are most important to the company and you're directly responsible for executing on them. If you think it makes sense to get two people, to, a bunch of people together for a couple of days somewhere, do it. And very, like, a very specific example, like last week we had, we have a product launch that's coming up. There's some kind of big blockers and dependencies and the team lead on that two levels down from me, basically sent a note around to 15 people and said, Baltimore next week, Tuesday, Wednesday, be there. That happened. I have, I had zero input into that. I have no idea if I know what happened because, you know, there's good things came out of it, but I know input in the agenda. It's like, you just give them do their thing. And I think when you hire really good people, and you empower them and say, look, here's what needs to be done. Here's the what, you go figure out the how, and here's some resources to go and do it. And it you know, the script kind of writes itself. So that's how we're approaching it now. Hard to know how it's going to evolve. I miss being in the office with people. When I am when I have a full week with the team, I get really energized and I leave and I'm kind of, But at the same time, there's the realities of how the company is structured right now. 
Yeah, it's not just about your wants and needs. If you want, and we work, I'm up here three days a week. If you want to come hang out with me and the team on one of those days, I'm okay with that. I know we're not too far down the road from each other. And like you said, I think you guys are taking a really good and smart approach to it. And to your point, the key, what you said is if you hire the right people and you tell them what the expectation is and you empower them to make decisions along that expectation line, you're likely to have really good success. So I love to hear that, man. I love to hear different philosophies. And it sounds like you guys are really on top of it. So good stuff. All right, let's move into the hiring questions. Now, you've mentioned a couple of times your company is about 300 people big. And so it sounds like you've been involved with hundreds, if not thousands of hires throughout your career. Is that fair? Yeah, hopefully not thousands. I don't think we churn them out that fast, but uh, but definitely hundreds. Yeah. Okay, that's fine. We can deal with hundreds. So let me ask you, first question. Overall, do you have an overarching hiring philosophy? I think the most important thing for us is being very clear on what makes someone successful at facet and so we actually have done a lot of work on this like what is the facet archetype like the employee archetype and the place where we land is the growth seeker so basically someone who is really passionate about self-improvement and has a growth mindset and what's interesting is that actually maps pretty closely with the most successful clients that we have that people who from an early age want to come on and actually take charge of their financial life, talking to someone who has a similar mentality, who's on the other side, helping them, it just magic happens. And so we've, we have this archetype that actually spans both our client base and our employee base. And it's gotten very ingrained in our, in our hiring process where, and not only in our hiring process, but just in our day to day, where we'll say something like, oh yeah, that was a real growth seeker comment, or wow, that was a growth seeker presentation, or that was a growth seeker question. And so it creates this sort of framework in people's minds that that just permeates everything. And I think it really clearly delineates the people who are going to be successful here from those who aren't. And I would say, like, we have a probably much higher disqualification rate in the first screening interview, and a much higher close rate or success rate if you make it past that first screening interview as a result. And so I think it just adds a lot of efficiency to the hiring process. But more importantly, you get very like-minded people. Yeah. I love you saying that. We have five cultural totems at MSH, and one of them is a growth mindset. I've said many times in an interview, I might not be ready to be the CEO of a billion-dollar company yet, but by the time we get there, you better damn well leave. I'm going to be ready because I'm going to keep learning every day and getting better. And I think it does a couple of things, right? You want people that don't look at intellect or capability as static, right? Because then they're not putting in the work to continue to develop and continue to get better, even if it's 1% day by day. I think it also allows for vulnerability. This idea yeah. that we're perfect and that we know everything and that we've got all the answers, that's bad leadership, that's poor culture, that's poor form. None of the leaders I know that exhibit those qualities tend to have a lot of long-term success. And when you can open up and say, made a mistake, wasn't my best moment, but I'm learning from it, I'm growing from it. As long as you're actually applying that and learning it going forward, I think that's a huge thing. So I love that. Now I got to ask, how do you determine that in an interview? Because if you're just very simple about it and say, do you have a growth mindset? Yes or no. You might get snowed a little bit in terms of candidates. So what are you, what kind of questions are you asking to try to determine that? In the you, can, you can tease it out. You ask things like, tell me a little bit about your last job. Like, where did you start and where did you end up? What's your sort of greatest accomplishment and why? And why is that your greatest accomplishment? You can go off script and be like, what's the most interesting thing that you've learned recently? And that's one that I really love because the people who are like real growth seekers will tell you something that has nothing to do with anything you're 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 interviewing for. So if you were to ask me that question, like. I went really deep on hobo culture a few months ago. And I think there's actually like some very interesting parallels between that and like the sort of decentralized finance world. 
totally different type. That's a different podcast, right? And by the way, I'm not a crypto enthusiast at all, but it's just, it's like pattern matching in there. And so like someone who came and said something along those lines, like, okay, this is someone who's very intellectually curious, who you just know is going to learn a ton and is optimizing for growth. I really love that. Wow. And listen, if you have an organization full of growth seekers, as you frame it, you're probably going to continue to grow and develop as a company. And you're going to have people that are not static in their mindset and are growing individually. So I think that's fantastic. And I think it's a really key quality. I'm glad you called that out. Do you have a interview experience, bad or good? And you don't need to name names that comes to mind though. When I say, what's your most memorable interview experience? So my, my kind of funny, the funny fact of my career is I've only interviewed for one job. It was the first job out of college at the company that ended up becoming LiveRamp. And, and then from there, I've basically started every other company that I've worked at. So I'm largely unemployable at this point. And yeah, so fast, it better work out. But no, but so when I was interviewing with the CEO of, of LiveRamp, a guy named Oren Hoffman, who is also like a very non-obvious and contrarian thinker and has all sorts of interesting sort of tips and tricks and when it comes to hiring and building teams. But he had sort of the most off the wall questions that like had nothing to do with the job. It was like, what's an opinion that you, what was a strongly held opinion that you have that you recently changed your mind on and why? And that was to, to highlight like what flexibility of thinking. And it's actually not that far off from the growth seeking questions, right? Which is, are you open to new information and changing your mind? And I think one of the things that helped me land that job is that I had, figured out a couple of his friends. This was in like 2008, 2009. So all this, your social media stuff was public. So I could easily see who his friends were. And, uh, and I had some mutual friends in common. And so basically went and got like all of his answers to those questions. And I was like, here's mine, but also I know what yours is. And he was like, whoa, that's interesting. So at least I'd done my research. Dynamo, he had to have been pressed by that. So not only are you able to articulate and answer the question, because you've had a chance to think it out, you also know what his answers were. So was he in any way, he was impressed by that, it sounds like, obviously you got the job. He hired me, yeah. 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 That's fantastic. But so yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask you, so I know you mentioned earlier about favorite questions. Do you have any others that come to mind? Is there a a pet question that you ask in every interview that really teases out what you're looking for out of a potential faceteer? It's a funny thing. It's, we've grown to a point and I have a strong enough executive team, I actually do a lot less interviewing now, which is I'm almost like mildly embarrassed to say that out loud, just because I feel like the CEO's job is to always be recruiting. The executive team that I have has have built such strong teams underneath each of them that I do. But at this point, it's almost like meet and greet kind of thing, or they bring me in to sell. Well, we've recruited some really amazing people over. And so I'm actually, I'm the one getting interviewed almost, which, which is, which is cool. We did just make a big C-level hire that, that came over from a competitor and, and we had a probably three or four month kind of courting process there. And there was, and I want to be mindful of not giving away too much there, but we had some really interesting back and forth, especially around the, the sort of big vision and like the opportunity ahead of us. And he was very clear that he didn't want to go and work for a company that was going to sell. And that like, he only wanted to work for a company that was going to like basically build the next Fidelity or the next Schwab size company, obviously with a different approach to the business. And I think, especially when you're hiring at the C-level at our stage, finding people who have that big vision and are like willing to say like, yeah, you know what, if someone comes along tomorrow and offers $3 billion for the company, we're going to say no, which takes some guts to do. And so that was one of the big differentiators around like his mindset and mentality that made me feel really good about bringing him on. I mean, he's in it for the long haul and he wants certainty. And certainly if he's going to make a big move like that, that's fair game. Those are great questions to ask to make sure you know what you're walking into when you make 
that big of a decision. Let's take it off the sea level. Let's take it down to say somebody super talented, maybe five, six, seven years out of their career that you really want. If you have that ideal person in front of you, what are some of the things you're hitting about facet that you want them to know? So I'm a big believer in, I'm a big believer that it, in being very blunt and clear about what their life is going to be like at facet. And so like, I very rarely am like, yeah, you're going to have to work like a dog for three months, but relief is just around the corner and there's a 40 hour work week ahead of you. It's more like, you're going to come here and we are going to have a two-way contract, which is you're going to do the best work of your career. And we're going to do everything we possibly can to grow you and make you feel supported and make you feel like this is the place where you can do the best work of your career. And that's like a pretty, again, this all comes down to the growth seeker mentality, right? The right person is going to hear that and be like, oh, hell yeah, like, this is where I want to be. And so there's almost like a little like scaring them off component, right? Where it's like, you actually want people to think that it's going to be worse than it actually is, because then you know, you've got someone who's really going to give it their all. Yeah, I was just in a leadership meeting at a training session that we do with some of our early in career talent at our company. And we were just talking about the idea of reciprocity, both ways, right? Of course, yeah. you want to work at an employer that is flexible, is empathetic, is understanding, that treats you as a human, not as a number, that supports you, that develops you, that does, that puts other good people around you, right? But there's another side of that equation that I think sometimes in today's narrative gets a little bit lost. It's also about what your two-way contract says back to that employer too, doing your best work, at times sacrificing, right? At times taking less, and I don't necessarily mean financial, but maybe taking a step back to take two forward. That reciprocity is so important. And it's really important in every dynamic and every relationship that we have in our life whether it be marriage, whether it be friendships, whether it be any relationship worth having. And so sometimes I feel like it's gotten so skewed the other way about what can the employer do for me? It's also about what can the employees do to empower the company and grow the company? Because that's a mutually shared objective that everybody wants. If the company's growing, almost definitely you as an individual are growing too. So I think that's totally. that shared reciprocation that I think is super. There's another sort of like surefire sign for me that someone's going to be good is if they're willing to take a lateral or sometimes even backwards move from a title standpoint to go and work for an amazing leader. That to me is okay. This person is going to be really successful because they're optimizing for learning from someone that they really respect. So we've had that happen a couple of times with, you know, some of the senior people at our company have brought folks over and said, look, you might've been reporting to the CEO at your last job, but like you're actually going to report to a C-level person who's, who, and you're not on the executive team. And those people who have said, yeah, okay, that works for me is have been really successful. Yeah, totally agree with you on that. And I think that's really important to just like you said earlier about being blunt and having people understand. And if you see somebody that is willing to, like you said, take a step back to take those two steps forward. I also think it depends. And there's no silver bullet here, right? Every situation and circumstance is different. I find that early in your career, you should definitely, right, be making decisions like that. As you get later in your career, those are the times that you should start leveraging, right? The things that you've built in your career, the pelts you put on the wall and things like that. So I just think it depends on the circumstance, but I agree with you. When I see somebody that is in it for the right reasons, that's such a draw to our company and to every company, I think. I'm glad you said that. Let's talk a little bit about, listen, everybody misses, right? When it comes to hires, right? When you've missed on somebody or when your team has missed on somebody and you're looking back and doing a postmortem on the situation, is there a common thread of what you may have missed? Yep. The number one mistake that I've made is being opportunistic. Have some, having someone come along and being like, wow, this person be an incredible VP of sales. And then being and not actively be recruiting for VP of sales or, and not running a process and hiring mm -hmm. that person anyways, that has almost always, it, I can't think of a time when that's actually worked out well. 
Yeah, let me ask and you a question. So, like, Has it been because of yeah. the person or because of the lack of infrastructure setting that person up to be successful once they got into the role? I think it's probably both. I think it's probably like if we if I was taking a step back and say, okay, like what am I really solving for here? It like the answer is not to have this person work at the company. The answer is to evolve our sales organization to a different level. And so if I'm gonna do that, what actually needs to happen? And there's probably three things, one of which a new sales leader is a new sales leader, but and the rest would be the infrastructure and the support. And the answer might be, hey, we're actually not ready for a new leader there yet. There's six months more of work that we need to do to get ready for that. Or the answer might be like, yes, we definitely need a new leader, but it's a big world out there. Let's look at the entire sort of group of available talent or the pool of available talent, and then see if that person is actually the best. And the times when we've done that, and I have learned from my mistakes and I haven't done the opportunistic thing in a while. You've got a growth mindset. I hope so. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. The times that we've taken a step back, almost always we've ended up hiring someone different for that role. And so that I think is probably the biggest one. And especially when you're running a startup and you've raised venture capital and you're like, you've got gun to your head around time and runway and all that. It's so easy to just be like, we have to make progress. It's like any motion is forward motion. It feels like. And sometimes taking a step back and going a little bit slower, you end up going faster in the long run. I love that. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about candidate experience. You've talked a few times now about what I would call a realistic job preview, having people understand what all is entailed with coming to work at your company. Yeah. It sounds like your team is doing the majority of the interviewing. Are you feeling good that they are doing the same thing and communicating the same thing? What are you doing to ensure that when people are interviewing, A, they're having a good experience and getting a good idea and understanding of who Facet Wealth is and who they'll be working for and with? And do you feel really good that your managers, your leaders are carrying out that same vision in the interview process? Yeah, for starters, we have an awesome recruiting team and it's actually very small. I think we have three full-time recruiters. So the sort of tip of the spear is a very small group of really high quality people that I trust completely. And it took us a while to get there, but like they are so in lockstep with the types of people that work well at the company and what we're trying to achieve as an overall business and what our culture is that you just know that you're being represented well in the marketplace, similar to any really high quality sales people. And then they have a process that they actually run where they make the hiring manager write the job description, they iterate on it back and forth. There's a sort of template interview guide that every hiring manager uses that the recruiting team has put together. There is a fair amount of sort of system and process around it that it's not unwieldy, but it's just very clear on the do's and don'ts and the guidelines of and the guardrails of what it means to, to go into the process here. The one piece of feedback that we get consistently that is that our process, our hiring process does take a lot of time. And we probably put candidates through more screens than the average company does. And some people drop out and that's by design. If you're not willing to invest the time with us, then you're probably not going to be happy here. So that's served us well, I would say for the most part, but occasionally we'll get the odd glass door review that says, you struck me along for seven months and didn't offer me a job. Seven months is not the average for our hiring time, but there are outliers here and there. Sure. You go to Glassdoor only when you're really upset. No, Nobody goes there when they're feeling really good about the interview process. As a self-proclaimed talent evangelist and somebody who thinks and cares a lot about companies and the way they go through defining a standard in their talent acquisition and hiring process and being able to bring that together, whether it be through feedback, whether it be through collaboration in the interview process, whether it being the same definition of success, it sounds like you've really put a lot of thought and detail into that. And so then it's no shock to me that you're bringing in the right type of people in your organization and that you've had the type of growth you've had. Major kudos to you there, Anders. And it sounds like you've got a great team and one that you've empowered to do well. 
And I wouldn't say that's the case with even some of the biggest Fortune 500, Fortune 100 companies. So big time credit to you on that. And I love to hear it. It makes my heart warm because it's a passion of mine. And I love to hear somebody doing it. I've been asking, I want to learn a little bit more about you now. And I've been asking people, what is a day in your life like? And quite frankly, when you get to a certain level, it's meeting, email, meeting. So I'm going to ask you a little bit differently. Okay. Days where you go home or if you're working at home, right? And you feel the best about that day and how, when you felt uber productive, you felt really good. What happened in that day? That's a great, I love that question. For me, it would certainly revolve around spending time with the team. And I'll use the team broadly. It could be anyone in the company, but it would be doing stuff in person. And I'm going a little bit against my virtual CEO self here when I say that, but doing stuff in person and sitting in a room and like, figuring out a problem or figuring out initiative. I love doing that. And it's funny, the you were talking a bit about earlier, when you get to be a billion dollar company, you'll be ready as a CEO. And it made me think, one of the things that I think a lot about is like the benefit of being a CEO, and this is something only a CEO can do, is you can go and hire people who are better at their jobs than you are at yours. And so as I look at my executive team, every single person on my executive team has a is more experienced and better at what they do than me. If you're a VP of marketing, you can't go hire a director of marketing who used to be an SVP of marketing somewhere else. And it doesn't work that way. CEO is the only job you can do that. And so one of the challenges and one of my own growth areas is I love to sit in the room and help figure out a problem. I really shouldn't be doing that anymore because it actually gets in the way. And like it's been, I'll have an idea, but I actually don't really know what I'm talking about. And meanwhile, we have experts who are really good at it, who should be figuring it out themselves. So for better or worse, those days are getting fewer and fewer. But that to me is the biggest, like getting the team together and feeling that energy and getting you, you bottle up a lot of energy and emotion when you're working from home. And then when you're in person together, it all comes out. That to me is just feels incredible. I would say a close second to that is doing external stuff. So like partnerships or meeting with investors, if we're in a fundraising process or occasionally doing press or whatever, like conversations like this, where I get to tell the fastest story because it's something I'm really proud of. And so I don't think anyone ever gets tired of talking about stuff that they're really proud of. And so that to me is a close second, but I would say like the most fulfilling is like being, feeling like I'm actively involved in decisions that really move the business forward. And then this, the second is representing facet out in the world. There's a lot of simpatico here. And listen, I think that's very common with entrepreneurs and CEOs that get to a business of a certain size of scale. And I say that because a lot of things you said, I find myself nodding my head and agreeing with. I think somebody asked me a year ago, what do you love about your job? And I said, really? I get paid to come to work with a bunch of people I really like or friends and solve problems. And that's really what gives me juice. And what's funny is you really pointed out about the CEO conundrum. As you get to a certain scale as a business, that's actually not what you should be doing anymore. And But that's one of the things I love the most about my work over the last 10, 11 years. So it's that balance of knowing when to get involved and when not to get involved and let other people solve those problems. But I'm so with you on that is what gets me going. And also yeah. to your point, talking about our company and where it is, that's going to be the next phase of my career, I think over the next two to three years is really putting ourselves out there and putting our story out there. Because like you said, you never get tired about talking something you're proud of. And I'm damn proud of our company too, man. So I really appreciate that. That's a great answer. And one that I found myself nodding my head to. Is there anything in particular, an initiative, a program that you and the company are working on right now that you're really, really excited about? We are, we're about to launch, well, actually when this podcast, Guest comes out, we will have launched a basically a financial advisor brain. So, so like right now, our tech platform 
enables our advisors to serve our clients more efficiently. And there's a lot of workflow automation and it's all about moving data around and capturing data from a client, moving it into a place where advisors can play around with it and build different scenarios and then say, okay, if your goal is to buy a second home, send your two kids to college and retire when you're 65, here's like the sort of path. And there's, and that's a lot of work that advisors do kind of behind the scenes to, to get that done. We're about to launch basically a, a, I don't want to oversell it and call it AI because that's it's a little too much of a buzzword these days, but basically a tool that does all of that automatically and is capturing all of the data, all of the input data that the client has, all of their desired outcomes, and then basically making smart recommendations that will get better and better over time the more reps we put through there. And the idea is that like eventually we will actually have created like the CFP brain is going to enable us to do a lot of really cool stuff. Um, I don't think our business will ever not have a human advisor involved, but there is definitely a lot that we can do. Like our average client pays us three grand a year right now. Imagine if we've automated 98% of the work, what we could offer for 200 bucks, right? And so to me, that's, as I think about what that, that sort of tool enables or that platform enables is it allows us to go down market. Um, 76% of Americans don't have access to affordable and unconflicted financial advice. Right now we've built the sort of Uber black for planning. It's taking a very high cost premium thing and making it a lot more accessible, but there's a whole Uber X that we haven't even scratched the surface on that's coming soon. And this tool is going to be the sort of basis of it. So I'm really excited about that. Is this public information? Are we breaking news here on the higher learning podcast? We might be. Yeah, we might be. We haven't wow. demoed it to anyone outside yet, but yeah, we'll definitely do some press around it. And I'm really excited about it. I'm honored. I'm flattered. Tech entrepreneurs, come on to our podcast with your feature releases. We're happy to, there you go. to sponsor them, man. I'm excited to hear that. Listen, as you were saying, again, I thought some synergies in my own business, but if I just keep comparing, I'm going to sound like I'm gaslighting you to get away from that. But wow, that sounds fascinating. I'm excited to hear about that. And please let me know on those news releases. We'd be happy to share those on our feed. Uh, That's awesome. This comes out. All right. So another thing we like to do on the show is we like to go through an old LinkedIn post and get your commentary on it. So two months ago, pretty amazing news today. Facet Wealth is ranked number 46 of the fastest growing companies in America over the last three years in Inc. Magazine's 5,000. So that's huge. That's obviously pretty self-explanatory. Here's what I'm going to ask you. You got to give me one reason for that growth over three years. What is the primary reason you feel that growth has happened over the last three years? Actually, the need is there, and we built a solution that, that people see value in. It sounds so simplistic, but it's true. It's like... We've got product market fit. There is a huge demand. I just said it. 76% of Americans don't have access to financial. It's affordable and unconflicted financial advice. Like there is an enormous need there. We, I'll put some numbers around it for you. So we went into COVID at about two and a half million of run rate revenue. And today we're about 35. So, and so it's like a two year rant or I guess close to three years now. Yeah. Sorry. I'm losing track, but anyways, pretty substantial growth there. Sure. And the need is enormous. And there, we wouldn't have that level of growth. If there wasn't, if it wasn't a huge market, that's just massively underserved. The coolest thing about that, by the way, so we have about 13,000 customers right now, a few more than 13,000, 75% of them have never worked with a financial advisor before. Wow. So this whole idea that the stat I gave you 76% of Americans don't have access our client base is like almost perfectly reflective of that. So it's cool now that the numbers are all coming together and like we have a big enough data set, we can say, yep, this is a problem we're solving and we now have proof that we're solving it. 
You're democratizing financial planning and making it accessible for everybody, young and old. And that's awesome. And that's incredible. And that's important. So you are, you're filling a need. And I think that's amazing. And listen, just because you have a great idea, though, I think you know this as well as I do, does not mean that the success that you've had is, is inevitable. So a lot of credit to you and the team on, on, on building a company that is able to take advantage of a great idea. And hopefully over time, you continue to see more and more of that growth. We're going to leave with this. Earlier on in your career, obviously, we learn you have that growth mindset like we talked about. If you were able to amplify one nugget of career advice that you know now that maybe you did not know early on in your career, this is your form. Let us know. Always trust your gut when it's negative. Never trust it when it's positive. Ooh, give me more on that. Anytime you have that little feeling, it's like something doesn't feel quite right. 99 times out of 100 it's not right. Anytime you have a feeling where it's like, oh, this feels really good. Yeah, you should double check that. Goes back to that same thing I said about being opportunistic with hiring. I found that that just holds true every single time. And every time I've heated that, it's steered me away from trouble. I love that. That is excellent. So we get a lot of good nuggets on this podcast. That is one of the best. I am so appreciative of that. Anders, thank you so much for the time. Congratulations on all the growth and everything you're doing. I'm going to be a little biased here, but I think the fact that You're so good at knowing what you're looking for when you're hiring and bringing in the type of people that are going to help your organization grow is a big reason for that success. Kudos to you. Kudos to the team having a great product and everything. And I'm really excited about the new features coming out. Sounds like early next year. So congrats again. And thanks for joining us. Awesome. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Higher Learning with me, Oz Rashid. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. 